During the Nicaraguan Revolution of the 60s and 70s, when the Sandinistas overthrew the brutal dictatorship of the Somoza regime, a group of poor farmers gathered regularly in the small town of Solintaname to worship with their priest, Ernesto Cardinal. Instead of a sermon, each week they had a dialogue about the gospel. One week they read the parable of the talents, and after hearing the story, a poor farmer named William said, Well, that's a lousy parable. The priest asked, Why is it lousy? And William replied, Because it's about speculating with money, something we all condemn, putting money out at interest, giving money to others not so that they can live, but so that they can work with it only to hand it back over to the master for their profit. Then Oscar jumped in. Yeah, if somebody who comes along who's interested in money and reads this gospel and understands it in their own way, then these words are going to make them worse than they were before. Is it possible that reading the gospel might make us worse human beings than if we'd never read it at all? Sadly, the answer is yes. Everything depends on the way we read a story, how we interpret it, what we take it to mean. The Bible has been used to endorse all forms of evil in Western history, from patriarchy, colonialism, slavery, white supremacy, imperialism, the Holocaust, and homophobia, just to name a few. But the Bible has also been employed in the service of certain economic philosophies as well, whether it be socialism, communism, or free market capitalism. As Americans, we are immersed in a capitalist society. So we tend to read the parable of the talents through the lens of our economic system. In fact, one scholar called the parable every capitalist's favorite story. However, regardless of our economic proclivities, we cannot fail to notice that popular interpretations of this parable have been responsible for feeding us the horrifying lie that the poor are lazy, or worse, that the reason people are poor is because they're lazy. When Jesus' words are used to shame the poor, we must remember how important it is to read the gospel carefully and how dangerous bad interpretations of the gospel can be. It's almost alarming how much Jesus talked about money. We know that he addressed the topic more than any other subject. In fact, he talked about money more than he talked about faith and prayer combined. But how could the person who said, blessed are the poor, and who said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in to steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, who said, no one can serve two masters, either you'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Who told the rich young ruler, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Who turned over the table of the money changers in the temple and proclaimed, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. How can that person be the same person as the one who told this parable? To make matters worse... In the first century Jewish world, the practice of lending money with interest was expressly condemned. The Mosaic law in Exodus and the prophets of the Hebrew Bible repeatedly rejected the practice of charging interest on loans. They called it usury, and it was also rejected by the early church, outlawed by the Council of Nicaea. 
and deemed inherently unjust by medieval scholars like Thomas Aquinas and considered sinful and unlawful by both church and state long into the 18th century. Jesus was most assuredly opposed to the practice of usury. And he even said that instead of charging interest, we should loan people money without expecting to be repaid. Try suggesting that to your boss at Bank of America and Wells Fargo. In Luke 6, Jesus said, If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. The history of Jewish and Christian opposition to usury is a humbling example of how we love to take metaphorically what Jesus meant literally and to take literally what Jesus meant metaphorically. It's how we end up with companies called Five Talents Wealth Management in Canton, Georgia, or Five Talents Financial Group out of Des Moines, Iowa. I think they may have missed the point of this story. The parable of the talents does not seem commensurate with any of Jesus' other teachings on money, wealth, or economics, which is why some scholars claim that Jesus didn't actually say it. And others claim that the moral of the story is to be like the wicked and lazy servant and subvert the master's system of economic exploitation. Because we are living in a country with the greatest level of economic inequality in human history, which has been exacerbated by the economic downturn caused by a global pandemic that has left over 20 million people out of work who are going hungry, and with an impotent Congress and little or no financial relief package on the horizon, it is incredibly tempting to discard this story outright or desire to turn it upside down. It's also tempting to spiritualize the story into a simplistic morality tale about what we are called to do with our gifts or the talents that we've been given. However, it is quite possible that this story is very much about money, yet neither condemns nor affirms our particular economic system. It's all about where we focus our attention, how we understand the servant's action and the master's reaction. Like many of Jesus' parables, it helps if we read the story backwards. In capitalist readings of this parable, the master's judgment of the wicked slave is often used to confirm the wisdom of making sound investments with the money or property that is entrusted to us. However, the master did not praise the true trustworthy servants for making good investments. This parable does not affirm free market capitalism or the financial services industry where we pay someone to move our investments around. There is no affirmation of investing here. It is seen by the master as a last resort. In fact, the master's words to the untrustworthy servant about investing are born out of his anger and frustration. Infuriated, he told the servant that investing money in the bank was the second worst thing that he could do. The only thing worse than investing his money was burying it in the ground. According to Jesus' parable, Investing money in the bank was only slightly better than doing nothing with it. What we have is a comparison between servants who did something with what they were given and a servant who did nothing. When we hear that one who received five talents went and traded with them and made five more, we associate the word trading with E-Trade and the stock market. But there was no NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange in first century Judea. The Greek word here, ergazomai, means to labor, work, or toil. Sure, it can refer to a trade, but not a trade in stock. Trades like 
blacksmiths, masons, carpenters, painters, leather workers, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, those kinds of tradespeople. We don't know exactly what kind of work they did, but the two servants in this story, the good servants, found some way to put their money to work and doubled what the master gave them, which resulted in them being given even more. The untrustworthy servant, on the other hand, did nothing and buried what was entrusted to him in the ground. Money needs circulation in the community for an economy to grow. Doing nothing with our money is the worst thing we can do. Keeping it for ourselves is the second worst thing that we can do. The best thing we can do is to put our money to work, to share it, to spread it around, to give it to somebody else. Back in Salintaname, Ernesto, the priest, told the poor farmers, Jesus gives us this example to make us see that money and love follow the same principle. For money to multiply, it must be shared. The same thing is true of love. When we share love, it multiplies. Christ says that just as capitalists multiply money, so revolutionaries must multiply love. Then William, poor William, he responded again, Yes, and they say time is money, but love is money. Love is wealth well distributed among the poor and the needy. The two are linked. Love and money are deeply related. Right, Ernesto exclaimed, money can be good if we use it as it ought to be used, distribute it widely. That is the way that love is multiplied in our material world. Finally, Ernesto said, this story tells us that anyone who won't take risks in order to change the world is condemned to solitude and separated from humanity. Why didn't the untrustworthy servant do anything with what he'd been entrusted? One word, fear. When it comes to money, fear is one of the most powerful emotions that drives our behavior. Fear of losing money or fear of losing the security and peace of mind that comes with money often paralyzes us into inaction. Even when we do act, We often do so in a spirit of fear. Fear is what drives us to hide our money or hoard our money, bury our money or invest our money in ourselves instead of sharing it with the world. But fear is a tricky emotion. Sometimes fear masquerades as a subtle anxiety about our financial security and an abundance of caution about our future. We don't always experience it as fear. Sometimes it feels more like Anxiety about long-range planning and preparation, making a rainy day fund, putting away a little extra for retirement or investing in our future or our children's future. These are all good, smart, rational things to do, but playing it safe can easily become an excuse for keeping more than we need to thrive and lead us to becoming selfish and greedy without even knowing it. The fearful emotion that drove the paralyzing behavior of the untrustworthy servant in this story is exactly the same as the anxiety that drove the man in another one of Jesus' parables. You might remember the one about the man who had a crop that yielded an abundant harvest, incredibly abundant, and he thought to himself, what am I going to do with an extra crop yield? 
I have no place to store all this extra harvest. Now, some might think that the man would investigate some way to give it away. But did he share it with his neighbors or give some to the poor? Nope. He said to himself, this is what I do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones to store the extra surplus. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus said, for those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Master, the servant said, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. The servant thought he could play it safe. He thought that if he did nothing, he couldn't make a mistake. He thought that if he didn't do anything, he couldn't do anything wrong. He thought that if he buried it in the ground, then at least he wouldn't lose it. But the servant was severely mistaken. And that is the mistake that we often make as well. That's the danger of doing nothing. Precaution is not a virtue, at least not according to Jesus. Neither is fear or security either. Jesus said, those who seek to save their lives will lose them. To those who much is given, much is required. With great power comes great responsibility. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Hate is not the opposite of love. It turns out that fear is the opposite of faith and apathy is the opposite of love. Faith and love require action. To do nothing is the definition of being untrustworthy with what has been entrusted to us. There's a quote that's often attributed to Edmund Burke, but it really comes from the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who said in 1867, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to look on and do nothing. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to look on and do nothing. There's this legend about a poem written on the wall in Mother Teresa's home for children in Calcutta. It's entitled, Do It Anyway. And it said, People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of being selfish or ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight, create anyway. If you find serenity or happiness, some may be jealous, be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So do it anyway. In the midst of this apocalyptic pandemic, there are a thousand reasons to bury our money in the ground and build bigger barns and act out of fear, but none of those reasons are based in love. There's an old proverb that states, 
Money tells the truth. It's one of the reasons people tell investigators to follow the money and see where it goes because money tells a story. What we do with our money, how we spend our money, where we give our money tells the story of who we are, what we value, what we believe in. Cornell West said, justice is what love looks like in public. What if money is what love looks like in our pocket? What if money is what love looks like in our pocket? Love is action. Love is material. What if love could be money shared, money given, money redistributed to those in need? Practicing good stewardship isn't easy. Nothing holy ever is. But as our covenant states, it is our responsibility to be faithful stewards of our lives and of this world, to nurture this church as a community of faith as an instrument of reconciliation in the world by the dedication of our personal and material resources. When it comes to money, the only thing that has the possibility of driving our behavior more than fear is love. Love is the only thing more powerful than fear. We give because we love. We give because we love each other. We give because we love our neighbors. We give because we love this church. We give because we love God. We give because we love creation. We give because we love our city. We give because we love our world. As human beings, we give our love out of love for the things we love. And when we give our love for what we love, fear disappears. John said, There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. So let us not be paralyzed by fear. Instead, let us be overcome by love. Let us refuse to bury our love or our money in the ground. Let us spread both our love and our money far and wide so that it multiplies exponentially and expands rapidly and grows 100-fold. Let us share our love with our community and with our neighbors and with the rest of the world. Yes, poor William the farmer in Salintaname was right. The parable of the talents can be a lousy parable if we read it wrongly. But if we read it right, it can also be an extraordinary parable of profound generosity. It's up to us. It's in our hands. We are the ones who determine whether this parable is lousy or lovely. We write the story with our lives and with our love. The question of stewardship is always the same. What will we do with what we've been given? Will we do nothing or will we do something? Will we bury our love and our money in the ground or will we share our love and our money with each other for the sake of the world? Amen.